Hi, and welcome to the latest Trending Tech Podcast. I'm Jeremy Cowan, co-founder of the technology sites Vanilla Plus, IoT Now, and The Evolving Enterprise, our joint sponsors today. It's great to have you here for the latest, sometimes serious, sometimes light-hearted look at digital transformation for enterprises. Today, I am delighted to be joined on the pod by Kelvin Chaffer, who is Chief Operating Officer of Lifecycle Software. Kelvin mentioned that through their work as a global provider of business support systems for mobile network operators, they've been seeing rising levels of fraud on the networks since the start of the Ukraine war. So it seemed to be a good moment for us to discuss more broadly the role of technology in Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And here we are. Kelvin, welcome to the Trending Tech Podcast. Hi, Jeremy. Thanks for having me on today. Really excited about it. Great to have you. Well, we're going to start by looking at two recent news stories in the tech space. Then we're going to hear more about how telecom and IoT services are being sustained in Ukraine. And when all of that's covered in our closing section called What the Tech?, Kelvin and I will take a dive into a couple of stories that amazed us. So what was the news story that caught your attention, Kelvin, and where did you find it? Okay, so uh, there was a story this week on Tech Radar about Bones for You and their administrators claiming that there was a plot to destroy them by some of the uh, the network operators back in back in 2014. That's a pretty extraordinary claim. It is. <laughs> it is. I mean, um, I was quite close to this at the time. So, I mean, we were doing all the back office for Life Mobile, who were the MVNO that Phone for You had span up to help um, drive some of their growth. Um, Phone for You themselves were a huge business. They were they were a big high street retailer. In 2013, they turned over one billion pounds, um, and although they'd lost uh, three as a as a uh, provider in in 20, 2012 they still had uh the other big three in the uk uh who they were selling contracts for and then on september the 14th uh, 2014 um literally overnight out of nowhere um they went into administration um and it was literally out of nowhere no one no one i think saw it coming so yeah it was it was pretty crazy really um huge shock um, again, three had gone their own way in 2012. O2 had, had started cutting ties at the start of 2014. So uh, they still had um, EE um, and Vodafone. And again, the claim the claim is that EE, Vodafone and O2 were collaborating together to try and push, his, push the prices down. Phones for You obviously didn't want to go that low. Uh, they couldn't come to a deal. And then when uh, when Vodafone and, and EE effectively said no. That was it. The whole the whole thing fell over. We should say, of course, that um, this is uh, a claim, an allegation that is refuted by all three of the operators in question. But it's not a frivolous um, uh, claim. I, this is by a respected administrator. Uh, so it's worth discussing, um, however, briefly and with the qualification that this has not been tested in law. 
like you, I mean, I wasn't as close to this as you, but I was observing it. I do remember Phones for You closing in 2014, and it really shook up the UK mobile sector. Um, uh, as you say, you know, the company had only posted profits the year before of £130 million. I mean, that's over $160 million at today's prices. So it was hard at the time to understand how the business had gone south quite so quickly um what was the discussion at the time i mean was there any was there thought to be any uh, outside um interference or was this just one of those things that happens to businesses that they can topple over quite quickly i mean i think they assumed that they would have got the deal with with ee and vodafone um again they 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 tried to uh, look after themselves by by spinning up life mobile which was their own mvnos which they would would then be able to sell contracts for if the network operators were leaving but ultimately their main source of income was the, the kickbacks that they were getting from selling contracts through through these these network operators and again as soon as that came to an end the the money just wasn't there for them yeah yeah um i think they probably use the term commissions the previous and current owners of the accused networks obviously deny the allegations. And even if it's proven, I think in the case of EE, I doubt if BT, who are the current owners, would be liable to pay any compensation as they'd surely be indemnified against any previous illegal activity. So I guess the buck would stop if it came to it with the previous owners. We'll just have to uh, watch this one with interest. And uh, I might call you back if you wouldn't mind to come on the co- uh, on the podcast if there's uh, more to report, if this actually turns into a legal action. At the moment, it's just allegations flying around and being denied. Indeed. I mean, it's, it's going to be very difficult to prove regardless of this sort of thing. It's- yeah. Well, the story that I wanted to look at was on Mobile World Live um, and headlined Twitter pays $150 million fine to settle probe. For anyone who hasn't seen the story, it's about the violations of Twitter users' privacy that were exposed by the US regulator, the FCC, in 2019. Twitter had stored addresses and phone numbers that were supplied by its users for security purposes, and then they had used the same data, by mistake apparently, for advertising. They couldn't even say later how many phone numbers had been used. Um, Apart from that, they were obviously completely on top of their data management. Um, It'll come as a relief, I'm sure, to any billionaires who might be bidding to take over the platform at the moment. But that in itself is a whole another story. Anyway, Twitter paid the fine, but grumbled um, publicly that it had already addressed the violation. Now, I don't know about you, Kelvin. I'm I'm not sure that tidying up the crime before the police arrive is a particularly valid argument for not being punished. Yes, I did shoot him, officer, but give me some credit for cleaning up the mess before you got here. I'm joking about this, but it seems to me that serious security concerns within the comms sector are increasingly distilled into issues around privacy. And we've probably all seen reports that Generation Z are more willing to sell their data than baby boomers like me. We're all right to be concerned that our data has been handled in either a cavalier or a cack-handed way. What did you make of the story, Kelvin? I think it's really, really sort of worrying that a company the size of Twitter are uh, 
uh, taking shortcuts on the security side of things, as you suggested there. I think 30% of, of Generation Z are very trusting um, with, with their information. Um, and with that, again, I, I mean, if it's being used in the wrong ways from marketing and being resold elsewhere, then, again, we've got GDPR rules for a reason. Yeah, and it makes it all the more clear why uh, those GDPR rules are so um, important for all of us, uh, for our protection. Okay, um, let's focus on the situation in Ukraine, which was really the starting point for us getting together. Um, Kelvin, we're all sadly becoming far too used to seeing the big picture on the invasion of Ukraine. But just for a few minutes, can we examine the impact on telecoms and IoT services? What has Lifecycle learned about it? Sure. When the, the crisis in the Ukraine started, a lot of the uh, network operators, MVNOs, etc. in the UK, um, offered free calls, free SMS, free data um, as part of their services to, again, enable contact uh, both in and out of the Ukraine. To us, we ended up seeing like a 3,000% increase in the traffic that was coming in and out. Really? And with that comes broad risks. If something's given given away for free, then people take advantage of that. And there's lots and lots of different fraud scenarios that, that come into play where um, SMSs and voice uh, are being used by bad actors to initiate a, a fraudulent action. Some examples of this, which I think everybody has, has probably seen over the last couple of years with COVID, etc., is is something called uh, smishing. Um, which is basically where you're receiving lots and lots of SMSs uh, from people that you don't know, mm-hmm. uh, often trying to get information about you. Um, so it might be a, a, a message from or pretending to be from Amazon or, or someone like that, uh, saying that someone's trying to log into your account and that you need to click on a link to uh, to confirm it's you. And it's basically a, a fake website. Uh, with the Ukraine, we, we have been seeing more along the sort of charity lines of that. So again, people have been spamming out SMSs to as many numbers as they can uh, because of it, it all being free uh, with charity links. And the people in, in Ukraine are desperate, aren't they? And um, if they're receiving links which are, are offering them help, be it charity or, or to, to get themselves some help, then they're going to click on those links. Um, and and put their information in. Another thing that we we have seen is a, a huge increase in international revenue share numbers, and these are effectively premium rate numbers uh, in the Ukraine. The network operators have opened up all these calls, all these all these scenarios, which and basically when you call these numbers, the fraudster gets a share of the cost of the call to the number or the cost of the SMS to the number. So what that means, again, is if you buy a lot of SIMs and you send a lot of SMSs or make a lot of calls to these numbers, the, the owner of that number is, is getting a, a, a portion of it. And again, yeah. that, that can sort of really add up. So how can the industry do more to prevent the frauds that you're seeing? I mean, a lot of it is education. One thing with the SMS fraud, I mean, in emails, we're fortunate enough to have uh, like junk mail filters and stuff like that 
So a lot of the spam that you're receiving via email is going into your junk mail filter. And by being in your junk mail filter, you're a lot more aware that it's probably not good. Uh, SMS, it just comes straight in. There's, there's nothing really validating it currently. Um, and people without education or without the knowledge are more likely to click on those links, follow them and add information that is, is going to help the fraudster to move on to their next sort of actions. Um, there is a DB, uh, Prism DB, which is holding a lot of the uh, revenue share numbers, which the network operators can sign up to um, and can add to their own blacklists. If if the network operators have an OCS, yeah. um, then you, again, you can add it to a blacklist uh, pot and, and any call to those numbers is basically denied at that point. So that they, they should be doing that. They should be stopping calls and SMSs to those numbers. We have quite a lot of, uh, of forums um, in the UK and abroad, TUS, GSMA, RAG. And again, the, these forums should be sharing as much information to stop the fraud going forward. Yeah. So have you seen any evidence of what was initially predicted as an expected Russian disinformation campaign? Um, again, I mean, SIM boxing, which is basically where someone buys a lot of SIMs and they stick it in a little machine, then sends out lots and lots of SMSs or makes lots and lots of voice calls. What we have seen and heard about is the Russians buying lots of these SIMs in, in the Ukraine, putting them in the SIM box and then spamming out messages so that it looks like it's coming from a Ukraine number and it's full of the wrong sort of information. It's telling the people that it's messaging, that um, that the war's not going well, that people have died, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's trying to demoralize the people that it's sending the information to. It's sending the wrong information and and cause problems. Sending it to Ukraine numbers. Indeed, yeah. And again, if that ends up with the troops and they, they think that Kiev has been lost or or whatever, then that's demoralising. Yeah. So lastly, if, if anyone listening to the podcast wants to take some positive action to support ordinary Ukrainians and the businesses they rely on, uh, what can they do? I wanted to mention before I um, hand over just one Ukraine charity that I've seen, which is uh, called One Ukraine. Um, you may be familiar with it, but it's a charitable platform built around data to provide humanitarian aid for Ukraine and spearhead scalable infrastructure projects. Um, do you know about this or any others? Yeah, I mean, one, one thing I will say is, again, if you're receiving SMSs, don't don't trust it immediately. Verify it before, before doing anything with it. That there are lots of charities out, out there, such as Ukrainian Red Cross, uh, UNICEF, UN Refugee Agency, et cetera, et cetera, amongst others that, that are proper charities and your money's going to the right, right places. But if you're receiving SMSs, there is a good chance that it is a smishing attack of some description. So, so again, please don't just trust the stuff that you are uh, receiving yeah uh just for peace of mind the one ukraine charity that i mentioned is a charity registered as a gmbh in germany and it's audited by ecovis which is an auditor specializing in charities so uh that one is kosher um 
Yeah, re really interesting. Thank you very much for that, Kelvin. We've reached the what the tech section of the podcast. And uh, after such a serious discussion, let's just take a moment to look at what in the world of tech has, if not amused us, certainly amazed us. Kelvin, you go first. What amazing tech news have you seen? Okay, Jeremy, one, one of the uh, stories I saw was based on the front on Russian botnet. So this was identified uh, about uh, a couple of years ago originally um, as a bot that would take over IoT devices and send out this information. Um, more recently, they've identified that it's been enhanced with uh, a dashboard called SANA. Um, and basically, that dashboard allows you to set certain parameters around uh, the sort of disinformation that you're going to send out. Um, and what it effectively does is it sort of floods social media with uh, fake news. Um, and around that sort of fake news, it can you can specify how many likes you're going to allow the, each bot to make. And again, make it very difficult for the likes of Twitter um, and Facebook to realize that, that all this information is coming from bots. Um, and Elon Musk is, is in the throes of trying to take over Twitter. And one of the big things that he wants to do is stop uh, spam bots. Mm. Uh, and that's very difficult when a, there, there are bots out there that are taking over de devices that are doing distributed uh, denial of service attacks and have um, the intelligence to not just spam, but spam in, in a way that makes it very difficult to, uh, to identify. Yeah. So it's not just personal social media accounts. Um, from what I understand, it can provide an army of compromised IoT devices for staging uh, DDoS attacks and disinformation campaigns. So it's reaching into the IoT as well. Exactly. I mean, it's taking over devices and it's using those devices to uh, send out that disinformation to sign up to social media accounts and put stuff in the news that uh, that is wrong. Well, we'll put the link to the um, Hacker News uh, source of the story into our transcript of the podcast so people can follow it if they want. Um, what I uh, saw was hinted at was that it might have been used by the Russian security service, the FSB, that's the successor to the KGB, uh, or possibly by Belarusia or China. Is there any truth in that? Do you know? There is a good chance that there is truth in it. Some of the stuff that you've heard happening in Ukraine with these bots, they've been sending out videos with uh, deepfake. We've seen examples where uh, videos have been sent again to like uh, Ukrainian troops with deepfakes of, of Zelensky um, saying that uh, they were, were to put down their, their weapons. Crazy times. It's amazing. Well, we had a whole episode on deep fakes uh, um, a couple of episodes ago. So if anybody wants to see just how much that can um, be used by um, bad actors, there's more uh, on our website. Uh, yeah, it's, it's an extraordinary thing that this is even possible. Um, the story that I spotted, Kelvin, um, was on a company called Clearview AI, um, who many of our listeners will be familiar with. And they've been in the news a lot lately. Um, in fact, we invited them onto the podcast not so long ago. Uh, I'm still waiting for their reply, but maybe they will now. 
It's a report on the BBC website, and to be fair, on many others. Uh, and the BBC story was headlined, Clearview AI, Find in UK for Illegally Storing Facial Images. In this case, it was a story about the UK privacy watchdog, the Information Commissioner's Office, which has fined the company £7.5 million, that's almost $10 million, for gathering facial images from the internet to create a global facial recognition database. Apparently, the ICO has ruled that doing so breaches UK data protection laws. Um, not only has it fined the firm for the privacy breach, it's ordered Clearview AI to stop collecting data and using UK residents' personal data. As I mentioned earlier, Trending Tech Podcast invited Clearview AI to join us to discuss something else that they've been doing, which brings us back to the Ukraine topic. Um, according to a report on Wired.com a few weeks ago, the company has been collecting facial image data of Russian soldiers killed in Ukraine. I'm sorry that this is all fairly grim, but that's the nature of this week's episode, I'm afraid. Um, using facial recognition software uh, from Clearview AI on Russian social media platforms, it's already identified soldiers and even contacted their families to inform them that they died. Um, it, it's fairly uh, extraordinary that they've been doing that. Does that seem an ethical use of facial recognition to you, Kelvin? Again, I mean, these are, are sort of really difficult times, aren't they? Is it ethical getting the information back to the the, the families of the troops that have died is, is something that we should do. Um, but collecting the information... And and it sort of comes to the point of what what data do, do individuals own now? There's lots of new technologies coming out. The Clearview capturing facial recognition. You've got um, on your iPhone it taking your fingerprint. You've got the new sort of VR headsets, which is capturing information about um, how you're reacting to certain scenarios. Um, there's so much information that's being collected that currently probably sits outside of the GDPR piece. Yeah. Uh, what do we really own? Because when we're signing up to these different websites, most people, most of the time, don't read the terms and conditions, and and you're effectively signing away your life when when that's happening. Yeah. I think it's one thing to collect this data, and it's a, obviously an incredible technology that enables them to identify the Russian soldiers that have been killed. And whilst once understanding that there might be a need to share that with the families there's ways of doing that with that don't involve phoning people up and uh, um, breaking the bad news to them in that way i i can't help thinking that that's highly insensitive um and doesn't put us any further ahead ethically than the Russians that we are trying to distance ourselves from in their behaviour. So uh, I, for one, would like to see uh, a more ethical use of that data rather than um, turning it into some way of gaining an information advantage over the Kremlin. There's There's got to be a better use that benefits the families without scoring points in that way. Uh, otherwise, we're, we're kind of descending to the Kremlin's level. Yeah, I agree. I can't believe it. Time's up. 
this has been a packed episode. So let me finish by saying a big thank you to Kelvin Chaffer, COO of Lifecycle Software. It's been really great to have you here, Kelvin. Uh, thanks for having me on, Jeremy. It's, it's been great talking, even if some of the uh, subjects have been a little on the grim side. Indeed. And how can people find you for more information? Okay, so um, you can find us on LinkedIn, Lifecycle Software. We're also on Twitter and Facebook, but I'd look on LinkedIn primarily as that's where the, uh, the, the new news is being dropped the quickest. Brilliant. And thank you too, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us around the world. Of course, you can subscribe to the Trending Tech Podcast wherever you found us today. And yes, I know I've said it before, but if you've enjoyed the pod, go on, be a star, give us a top rating and give us a review. Just tell the world how much you've enjoyed it. It's not just to make our mums happy. It makes a massive difference to our ranking when people are looking for a new podcast to follow. So thank you if you can. Until next time, keep safe. Keep checking iot-now.com, theee.ai, and vanillaplus.com, because there you're going to find more tech news and interviews. And join us again soon for another trending tech podcast looking at enterprise digital transformation. Bye for now.